Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please stop now, go back, and listen. It provides a useful foundation for understanding some of the ways in which power and privilege create and maintain inequities in the multifaceted sports industry. This week, we're going to look at some of the ways in which the sports world has the potential to act as a positive example and how diversity, equity, and inclusion in sports has broader implications for how we can achieve unity through diversity. Bodine Sanders, the author of Race Against, Against Race, My Journey of Diversity and Inclusion Through Sports, told me that the skills he acquired during his time as a Division I collegiate football player at Villanova University have enabled him to broaden his capacity to relate to individuals of different identities and experiences. See, athletes, we know how to have conversations about race because we're together all the time. So because if you're spending all that time together, you're going to have conversations about current events. So the race conversation is going to come up. No matter how much you want to avoid it, it's going to happen. So if you have a foundation of communication, listening, respecting your teammate, then you can move from the beginning of a conversation and the process that you go through to the point where it gets to the uncomfortable conversation. But by that time, you've built a level of respect. You become part of the family. You understand discipline. You understand controlling your emotions. If you have a good teacher, and we know a coach is more or less a teacher, right? So if you have a good teacher and you've had good teachers, good coaches your entire career, these foundations of sports have been ingrained in you. Bodine told me that it wasn't until his late teens that he had his first genuine conversation with a white person, but that because he'd spent his life being part of teams, he had no trouble forming authentic relationships with people against whom he'd have held certain prejudices if they didn't have football in common. Participation in organized sports prepares those of us fortunate enough to experience cohesive teams and to receive the benefits of quality coaching to confront adversity in ways that not only build resilience, but enable us to see that every individual has value within the collective. And to talk about difficult subjects so that we can work together more effectively. Wouldn't it be useful for those that comprise United States society to have those kinds of constructive conversations? I mean, talk about obviously racial relations and racism and racial injustice in anywhere. And it's a very sensitive subject. And there's a lot of things that go along with that. And you almost want to act out of emotion, uh, which is completely natural right off the get-go, you know, but, you know, especially when you talk about people that you care about and people that you have a relationship with, it's never a bad thing to just have a real conversation because 
if somebody says something that is insensitive, there's a big chance that they didn't understand that they were being insensitive. And there's a chance that they did understand that they were being insensitive, but you're never going to know that until you have a real conversation with somebody. And you know, I just think that a lot of times talking things out can be a really constructive way to moving forward rather than necessarily pointing the finger on, on any side, you know, but it's hard to really make change. It definitely needs to be something from the top down and it's definitely need to be something that this whole community needs to work together towards. It can't be one group or one person that's really going to mainstream diversify, have more racial equity in this sport to make racial equity in the sport. Like it's got to be a full group effort because right now there's just so many barriers and so many obstacles that uh, one sector can't, can't cover on their own. That was Trevor Baptiste, a Haitian-American professional lacrosse player and face-off specialist who plays for both the Premier Lacrosse League and the National Lacrosse League. Although Trevor was speaking specifically about constructive conversations, diversity and racial equity within lacrosse, his words have implications for affecting positive social change across sectors. For instance, let's use the example of how the Premier Lacrosse League, the PLL, came together to take a public stand against racism in America. So essentially, their head of diversity and inclusion kind of got all players of color in the league together and kind of opened the floor for us to talk and figure out what we were going to do at the championship series to show solidarity for racial unrest in this country. So we got all together, we talked, and, you know, obviously a lot revolved around Black Lives Matter. We came up with a bunch of different things, but in the end, the league really pushed Black Lives Matter, BLM patches for everybody's jersey, which ended up to be optional. So it was kind of like a mixture. So the players, like I was in those Zooms, and, and we talked, and, and we – you know, wanted to do the right thing to show solidarity. And the league just really got behind the idea of showing solidarity and us as players. And, and then they actually were the ones that, you know, really pushed the patch. And it was through a lot of conversation and debating and trying to figure out what to do. But there's a league that totally, you know, they're just down for showing solidarity. Like I said, I hate to keep saying the same word, but they were down to just, really make a message and make a stand. And I think they felt like even more so in the sport of lacrosse where it does lack diversity, they have this really big opportunity to make a big statement about racial inequality and just equality in general. There is no denying that sports, especially professional sports, are tremendously influential within American society. From wearing a favorite player's jersey to watching games on TV to participating in rec and pickup leagues to earning multi-million dollar salaries for playing a game you love while being adored or despised based on your team affiliation or your most recent performance, people of all levels of talent and investment live for the game. Not only live for, make their livelihood from. 
Professional athletics are a multi-trillion dollar industry, and the revenues generated support those whose efforts we can see to those we might never recognize, like people working behind the scenes in social media, marketing, merchandise, ticket sales, nutrition, rehabilitation, financial management, and so much more. Of all those who contribute to athletics in America, it's clear that those with wealth and power who hold the primary decision-making capacity remain predominantly white and male. In order for the playing field, pun intended, to become more equitable, it's incumbent on those with influence and or visibility to take a stand for greater equity and inclusion. Sometimes that stand can be public, and others, it can be private. For instance, Mickey Grace, the defensive assistant for Dartmouth College, has had a lot of experience over the years of fighting for equity and recognition in the male-prevalent arena of football. Mickey started her football journey as an all-city defensive end at Germantown High School in Philadelphia before going on to play Division I women's rugby at Westchester University. She has served as the acting head coach of Women's Football Alliance Philadelphia team, the Philly Phantoms, and has held internship and apprentice positions for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the L.A. Rams. Mickey shared about how, in the male-prevalent world of football, allyship has been invaluable for her professional advancement. There's so many people who really like took a chance on me and really went to bat for me. And so and they're both men and women. And so, of course, at our league office, we have a woman named Sam Rappaport, who is just like the leader of the, the female train. She's the head of the NFL Women in Football Careers Forum that I was a part of. And so that forum is really validating. It says like the NFL has, you know, seen this person, knows this person exists. And that really gives you an ability to create relationships with people you may not have been able to otherwise. Also, there are people like Brian Zanders, who's my boss at the Rams. He's been so amazing in just my development and really teaching and like, he'll rip something I do to shreds. And then next day he's like, oh, this is perfect. Thanks. No feedback ever. So he's the best. And he, um, at the Rams, it's just a, an amazing organization that really just cares if you're a person. The person who's in charge of that scouting apprentice, his name is Jacques McClendon. And he really took a chance on me because I was a single mom, because he was raised by a single mom. And so that made him be like, yo, all right, I'm giving you a chance. And just just him being so self-reflective in his journey and him honoring his own mother so much was the reason why I got my scouting apprenticeship. And, And the way he talks to me is just like a normal job. Like he's like, Mick, can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, that small ability to treat someone completely normal is so validating in a world that always sees you as an anomaly or the token thing or the thing for PR. And so being seen that visibility is um, for me just priceless and, and really all we ask for. Like, that's all I want is just to not even be seen in like a, you know, a media perspective, but to be seen as a human being, like I exist in, a, in this world and in this space that wasn't originally built for me. Mickey continued naming people and organizations that have supported her and others in their careers. And then she explained how that allyship has been instrumental in enabling her to remain in an industry that can, at times, be hostile to Black people and women. And she's both. The end goal is longevity. 
And so like everybody wants to be on a great team. Everyone wants to get to the NFL the fastest, but the end goal is longevity. You know, if you think that the only way to be successful in football is to win a Super Bowl, then that means there's only been 52 successful teams ever. Or, you know, before there was a Super Bowl, I don't know how many years it was before, but since the Super Bowl, right, (laughs) there was a championship game before it was called the Super Bowl. I don't know how many years it was, but to say that there's only 52 or there's only been 52 successful coaching staffs in the NFL is completely missing the people who have been there forever who haven't won a Super Bowl. And so I think while I want to win, I have a thing about I want a ring really, really bad. <laughs> like I want, I want whether it's a championship ring, I want a Super Bowl ring like in college and I want one in the NFL. Absolutely. But I also want a job and I want to work at a team that I get to work for as long as possible. Coaching life is not long. You know, contracts are, are short periods of time unless you're a head coach and then win a Super Bowl. But also, like, the forgiveness that Black coaches get isn't one that everyone else shares. And so I think the ultimate goal is just how long can I be in this game? For those whose identities aren't as prevalent, being in the game can be harder. But it's even more important because it allows for a variety of perspectives and ideas, and it leads to better outcomes, not only for individuals, but for the entire industry. I think because businesses are now looking intentionally for diverse hires, it becomes a little bit more easier for you to be yourself and still get these roles and these opportunities. The code switching thing isn't as important as it might have been five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So I think from that perspective, we've made some progress. Now, I don't know how permanent this drive to hire more diverse talent is. It varies, I'm sure, from business to business. I hate it when someone you know, says, hey, we're doing something in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that doing something is we hired a Black person. Well, you have to go deeper than that. And you know, if that's the purpose, I don't really love those situations. When someone genuinely is taking longstanding efforts to improve in that space, of course, a byproduct of that is you're going to hire more diverse people. But then it's accepting them for their diversity. If they want to look a certain way or wear their hair a certain way or they want to have a hijab on or whatever it is, there has to be a a full respect and understanding and and even beyond that, an appreciation of that person's culture and ethnicity and, and what goes along with it. And I think that wasn't in the case 10, 15 years ago. People would sit there and listen to music at their desk during their lunch. I definitely wasn't going to sit there and blast hip hop at my computer on my lunch break back in the day, I I knew that that would not always be appreciated or looked at the wrong way. Does that mean I have to go and play pop music or country music just because I know that the guy next to me is actually going to like it a little bit? (laughs) That's kind of how I felt. And I was just like, I'd rather just not play music at all versus playing what I want. And those times, I think, have evolved a bit. Still a long way to go. That was Zach James, demystifying diversity partner and marketing manager. After graduating from Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, Zach rose up the ranks from a ticket sales representative to a premium all-access manager with the Brooklyn Nets franchise. And still today, as founder and CEO of Rebel Hill Consulting, one of Zach's many responsibilities is to produce a variety of content and shows featuring former and current professional athletes. I think it was really cool how, you know, when I was at the Nets, 
when I would entertain clients, I would take them down courtside and let them watch warmups and try to take pictures with the players. And I noticed that players even would look kind of surprised when they saw me down there with clients. They're so used to just seeing the white guys in the suits entertaining and schmoozing. And they would kind of be attracted towards me coming over there because they kind of felt good that there was a brother in those sorts of roles. When I would go to high to schools and talk to kids, I loved doing that because the kids didn't know you could be in this position. They thought they had to be an athlete or an entertainer of some sort. But when I told them, like, listen, I, I loved and wanted to be an athlete, too. But I realized that there was a very small chance of me getting there. However, there's a great opportunity to work in sports and work with these athletes and do fun stuff in that realm. They had no clue, no clue whatsoever that that was even an opportunity. So my goal is to make that a little bit more widespread knowledge that there's so many opportunities in sports beyond playing because a lot of black youth, their focus is I want to play. I want to get on the court. And I'm not saying don't chase those dreams. I'm saying there's much more that the game of basketball or football or whatever can offer you outside of playing on the field. And you should explore that. I just want folks to know that there's opportunities there. And, you know, the more we get interested at a younger age, the better it is in the long haul of these leagues being more diverse. What will it take for us to fight it, to realize that we all are one? Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Embracing diversity within athletics, which is happening in many instances and being celebrated, creates greater opportunities for those who might have been previously denied access or been expected to minimize certain elements of their identity in order to quote-unquote fit in. For example, Danielle Evans, Miss Brighton 2021, is a simultaneous pageant queen and rugby player who has retained an authentic sense of self, whether on a pitch or at a pageant. I'm not going to pretend to be anybody. And, and ultimately, it wasn't about, you know, going out there and going, oh, look, I'm, I'm different. Look at me. It was just about representation and saying to people, look, you know, you don't have to look a certain way to go and do something. If you want to give something a go, don't be terrified by the stereotypes. So the stereotypes that you typically hear in pageantry is obviously that you have to be stick thin, typically blonde, that you have to, you know, be all about world peace. And don't get me wrong, in pageants, we do a lot of charity work. I work a lot with charities and that is something very important to me. But it's all apparently that we're not very smart, that all after is fame and all this stuff. But actually, there is so much more to it than that. It's nothing like that at all. For example, with Miss Great Britain, I'm not going in to win the crown of Miss Great Britain. Obviously, it would be lovely to win, but it's not the be all and end all if I don't. And actually, I have two degrees and I have four diplomas. I'm, I'm not, I'd like to think that I'm not, I'm not dim or anything like that. I went up on stage with my rugby ball last year at Miss Great Britain. So I really want to put myself out there and go, this is me. But to be honest, such a welcoming community. And, you know, just because I looked maybe slightly different, I didn't feel any kind of prejudice, any judgment. I think people are just 
happy to see that I was being me. And, you know, I don't think that's the most important. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical, and a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com pages diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Diversity isn't just better for those whose identities might not have been previously represented in certain spaces. It has innumerable other benefits, one of which is financial profitability. I think right now, the opportunities are really probably at the forefront of the industry to get people of diverse backgrounds, to recruit people of diverse backgrounds, Q market to people of diverse backgrounds. You can get those groups of people that have capital to spend. It's smart to go after that kind of money. And that money is green. doesn't matter who spends it. It's how do you get that market and how do you make that market help you bring in revenue. 
That was Jeffrey W. Montag, the former associate vice dean of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM, and current director of STHM's alumni engagement. Jeffrey is also the founder of Montague Made Consulting and a partner of Real Property Capital United Advisors. His approach is both human-centered and pragmatic, and it's that approach that he's tried to impart to his students. You know, as many people that I hear when they come in as freshmen and I'll say, what is it that you want to do? And they'll say, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a sports agent. I want to be a general manager of a company or a sports team, or I want to be involved in USAC, the United States Olympic Committee, or I want to go to the FIFA tournament and be an ambassador. Well, in order to do that, you just can't look the part. You got to be the part. So my first thing was you got to understand Excel spreadsheets and accounting and budgets and do pivot tables. You got to understand what it is to do newsletters if you had to write for blogs or things have changed over the years. Or you have to understand how to manage and lead people. You have to understand global cultural awareness. What's it like to be other ethnicities? Because the bottom line is you want to make money. And if you discriminate against other people, you won't make money. If you cater to only one ethnicity, I don't think there's many races. I think there's many ethnicities. There's one race. It's called the human race. But if you discriminate against others, there's a quite possibility your business may not flourish. So you got to get rid of stereotypes and, and our own personal fears about stepping out there to meet the needs of all people. And that's something that's part of the development of success. Part of Jeffrey's legacy as an educator at Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management has been the establishment of a comprehensive course entitled Senior Seminar, which prepares students to develop the personal and professional resources to succeed. It's almost like the course itself acts as an ally by providing seniors with the skill set to develop a personal brand, build relationships within their respective industries, and engage in practical learning that equips them long after graduation. I decided that we needed a class that didn't focus on a textbook and how well you did on a midterm or a final or a book report, and to do a class called Senior Professional Development Seminar that would put you on the spot in terms of what your leadership skills are, what your public speaking skills are like, how you manage decision-making, and how you handle working with people of all backgrounds, which was really a simulated business of a professional team or a professional organization or a business. So, I spoke to people within the industry and they said that they thought that that would be a great class. So I created it and I can tell you it was pretty much the primary part of my legacy. So senior seminar became basically like the clearinghouse to graduate from the university and the program. Learning how to embrace ourselves and others personally and professionally while cultivating the skill set to work towards a common objective is supportive in creating a winning team, whether that's a sports team or a business team. 
In fact, Rick Beardsley, four-time All-American defenseman and lifelong lacrosse player turned coach, stressed that his philosophy of coaching high school students evokes unity through diversity. The first thing you have to remember being a leader of high school kids is that all of them are different. They all can't be treated the same way. You have to understand each kid. You know, can you yell at Ryan? Can you yell at Wyatt? You learn all your kids. You also have to keep in mind is that not every kid is there to play college lacrosse. He's there to be part of a team and have a good experience. So you have to learn about each individual. You have to treat them with fairness. If your superstar's late one minute, my rule is if you're a minute late on my watch, don't come. If my worst player or my third best player, it doesn't matter. Just leave. You're gone. See ya. We'll see you tomorrow. Right? You need to be on time. And you need to build team chemistry in order to win. And you don't do that by segregating your team. So you try to break down those walls, but then you empower kids. Like, by the way, when Tommy has the ball, he's the most important guy on this field. By the way, Tommy's not even going to go play college lacrosse. Tommy is lucky he gets in. But when he has the ball, he's the most important. So you better respect him. And that's what I try to do. So like my kids, you have to make bad, harsh decisions, right? You have to make decisions that upset people being a coach about playing time or because you want the team, right? Together, everyone achieves more. That is really the truth. I mean, I've, I've lost with great teams and I've won with teams who are good, but I've won because the team liked each other. They wanted, they cared about every, everyone. There's a lot of ways that bringing diverse groups of people together maximizes achievement when done in ways that are safe and supportive. But diversity without equity, belonging, and inclusion isn't going to propel us towards the goal of a happier, healthier, more empathetic, more equitable society. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Here's Bodine again. You've heard this saying, if you want to get to know someone's experience, walk in their shoes. Well, guess what? It's very difficult for our white brothers and sisters to walk in my shoes or black woman's shoes or biracial woman's shoes. Very difficult. We might think we can do it. We might say we can do it. We might wish we can do it. Very difficult. If you want to have 
a relationship across socioeconomic backgrounds and religions and race. If you look at people as individuals, you find common ground, you then begin building that relationship. And once you take that first step, and then you take that next step, then you begin to uh, gain confidence. Once you establish that relationship, meaning in the beginning, then you have to invest in that relationship. The same way you invest in the stock market or you invest in your kids or you invest in your family members or you invest in your friendships that you have. It's all about the effort you have to invest. And when you invest in race relationships, you come to find out that it's just like investing in any other thing. What's important to you? As Bo Dean points out, it's essential to invest in people for who they are, not for who you might imagine them to be based on your own uninterrogated biases. Last week, I promised that in this episode, you'd get to hear from Natalie Fahey, a lifelong athlete and collegiate swimmer who transitioned during her senior year at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Here's what Natalie told me when I asked about her transition. So that is a story that really is, it's very in- intertwined with my swimming story. Sophomore year of high school, I was really depressed. Didn't really know why. And following the end of sophomore year and stuff, I started kind of questioning my sexuality a little bit. I didn't feel entirely straight. I had a very small amount of attraction to men, but not enough to fully explain the what it felt like in my head of just kind of like wrongness. It's hard to explain, but things just kind of grew as I went through high school. Senior year is when the idea that trans people exist kind of really, really popped up in my head. I don't know how exactly, I wasn't really exposed to trans people in the media much in a positive or negative way. So I didn't really kind of know that they existed for the most part, but I would push it off. I'd be like, you know, this is something I can think about after I finish swimming in college. That's going to become a theme. (laughs) So senior year comes around and I'm like, I'm going to put that off till I finish swimming in college. Freshman year rolled around of college and things get a little bit more serious. But again, I'm like, "Uh, you know, I want to keep swimming and this is not, you know, they're not compatible. And I want to focus on my school and, and swimming. It got to a point where I think it was sophomore year, I really started to question things and started to take things a little bit more serious. So I get into my junior year and somewhat early in the season, I tweaked my shoulder. I couldn't swim for like a week and a half, two weeks after that. And that was a very difficult week. At this point, I was pretty certain that I was probably trans. I still didn't want to transition while I was swimming. And that week, I really started questioning, like, do I even want to keep swimming? Because this fucking sucks. And swimming is a lot of work. And I really think that transitioning is something I really want to start considering and possibly pursuing. But then a week and a half later, my shoulder was fine. And I got back in the pool and kind of forgot about it. Then winter break comes along. And... It was over winter break that I, it really like settled in my head. I was like, I'm trans. I want to start hormones as soon as I possibly can. 
And that's when I really started doing research on like, can I transition and swim? Because I didn't want to give either of them up. Swimming had been a part of my life for almost a decade at this point. But I knew that transitioning was something that would be absolutely essential for me. And I started doing some research. I came across uh, Skylar Baylor. He is a trans man. He was the first trans person to compete in NC2A swimming. So I like started reading into his story and became more knowledgeable about the NC2A's rule book at the time. And I kind of learned that it, it was something that I could do. It, it would have been a little bit different for me uh, than it would be for him because he's a trans man and I'm a trans woman. But I was like, this is something I can do. So we came back early during winter break still to do more training. And after one practice, I took my coach aside. I was like, hey, you know, can I talk to you? Can we get a little bit of privacy? As we walked towards the equipment room to get a little bit of privacy other than the pool deck, he thought I was quitting. We got into the room. I was like, I'm I'm not quitting. I would not like to quit, but I am a trans woman. This is who I am. And I'd really like to start transitioning and I'd like to keep competing. And he said something that I think will stick with me for the rest of my life. He said, you know, he took a, a minute or so. It's, it's like, you know what? This isn't something that I'm really experienced with. I don't have any knowledge of it, but I'm going to try and learn. And if this is who you are, you are more than welcome on the team. We didn't recruit you for the swimmer, the, the times that you put down in the pool. We recruited you as the person. If this is who you are, you've got a spot on the team here. Natalie's experience of having an affirming coach and, for the most part, affirming teammates, gave her the ability to be true to herself as both a trans woman and an athlete. That's not to say that everything was seamless. It wasn't. Yet Natalie told me that it was support that saved her. What helped me out the most was having a group of three or four friends that I could lean on entirely at times when shit was hard, when stuff, when things were really tough. Because I think I've portrayed a bit of a rosy experience both here and in in previous articles. But I mean, it even with as good of an experience I had, it was still really hard at times. The first swim meet we had my senior year, I'd been on hormones for six, seven months at the time. And I swam slower than I had since high school. And that was just... I went home after that and I cried myself to sleep because I, I just like, that was really tough being so much slower. And that was something I struggled with. Bilkis Abdul Qadir, the first Muslim woman in NCAA history to play covered and the creator of the campaign Muslim Girls Hoop 2, shared with me that the support of her teammates and friends has been integral but that even with their love, it was difficult to be a representative and became a whole lot harder when she was told that she had to choose between basketball and her beliefs. My teammates since day one have been the most loving, accepting, beautiful people. I couldn't have made it through my journey without them. And I say that because it was nothing but respect. Even before I wore hijab, My teammates knew that I had to pray. My teammates knew that I had to fast. My teammates knew that 
eventually I was going to have to wear the hijab. You know, we talked about these, we had these types of conversations at a young age. I remember like 12, my parents and I having to pull over on the side of the road during a carpool because we had to pray. So my teammates and the parents of my teammates were like, oh yeah, it's fine. You know, it was just, the understanding was amazing. I even had teammates come pray with me, you know, like we're going to pray with you. And that right there was just like the togetherness and the love that I needed to be myself. But it was a little bit of pressure on me because I had to set the bar for the people that I represented. And it's hard to do at a young age. Like you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. But I knew that I wanted to represent my faith the right way. So whenever it came to basic beliefs that we followed, if I fell short, I would let my teammates know, no, this is not, you're not supposed to do this, but I'm not perfect. We believe that the religion is perfect. So it was, man, it was tough not to think about it. (laughs) Facing adversity is something athletes go through. But when those athletes with underrepresented identities face additional adversity as a direct result of their identity, it creates unique challenges that make it important to have the support of allies to help them navigate. Here's Bodine again. In my book, I write about how one of the hardships I fell upon was, although I made the football team at Villanova, established myself as a Division I AA player, I was not able to earn a scholarship. So which meant what? I had to work my way through Villanova. And we all know Villanova is one of the most expensive schools. So I had to work. I had to hustle and work and pay my way. And one year after that coach that I described who I had to learn to give respect to in order for him to help make me and make me a better player. He left. He got another opportunity, another job, and a new coach came in. And it's just like we were just talking about building relationships. That relationship didn't go well. So my playing time diminished. So I was faced with not playing, which is devastating to an athlete, but also not having enough money to pay for rooming board. I had earned enough through Pell Grants and loans and and all those other things to pay for tuition, but not rooming board. So I was homeless. After our two weeks of preseason practice, I was homeless. I had no dorm assignment, no key to a room, and two of my teammates stepped up and asked me to live with them for the full year. Now, here's what's important about that story. Prior to those two teammates asking me to bunk in their room, my Black teammates would allow me to sleep in their room for a night or two until I figured out my situation. So I went from two Black teammates in their room for a night or two to another two Black teammates in their room for a night or two to another Black teammate's room for a night or two. And then all of a sudden, these two white teammates step up and say, enough of that. You're staying with us the whole year. That elevates the story even more. Because what happened is, leading up to my junior year, which is when that happened, it was a growing process. I had to learn to trust all of my teammates 
and give all of my teammates the same level of respect that I gave my black teammates, the same thing I do with my coach. And in doing that, that allowed me not to turn down their grace and empathy and help because I could have been a knucklehead and said, no, no, I got it. I'll be okay. No, no. They didn't allow that to happen. They said, no, 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 dude, you're staying with us the full year. Where's your stuff? Before I could even open my mouth and turn them down, they were up going to the room next door, which is the room I stayed in the night before, grabbing my stuff. And then the other teammate was walking me to the athletic facility where I kept a few of my other bags, mm-hmm. right, of clothes and whatnot. So these teammates, Rich Lage, a.k.a. nickname, Big Country, and Perry Hodge. Now, Rich Lage from Charlottesville, Virginia. Perry Hodge from Hilton Head, South Carolina. There were three guys, the three of us, from three different parts of the South. An Oreo, <laughs> reverse Oreo, we called it, right? Two white guys and a black guy. But we were able to live together the entire year where coaches didn't think it would last, teammates didn't think it would last, administrators on campus who found out about it didn't think it would last. That's why they didn't get involved because it was illegal, but they figured it wouldn't last. So they didn't get involved. They just figured it would just work itself out. But guess what? We were able to build a relationship that's 30 plus years old. That's the kind of proof that I have based on my experience that's If you have diversity within the organization and the group you're involved in, you have an opportunity to build great relationships across racial lines. The value of relationships that span race, gender, religion, socioeconomic status, culture, and other elements of identity can't be overstated. They go far beyond the individual level of one or two people helping a teammate overcome a particular instance of adversity and have widespread societal applications. Here's what Bill Key said about the broader importance of her fight for freedom of religious expression, not only for herself, but for others who have been targeted by ignorance and discrimination. So honestly, looking past the fact that I was doing it for Muslim girls or Muslim women, I think what I started to see was using my story or my journeys or my struggles as a way to educate people on my faith or educate them on being a Muslim woman, because that's an actual thing, which is weird. But I knew that I could break stereotypes and prejudices and, and, all of the misconceptions. And I remember specifically, and and this will stick with me forever. I did a speech at this university in California and the crowd was actually a mixed crowd. And you know, with college events, you never know if you're going to get one person or 50 people or a hundred, you know? And so this room just so happened, it was packed. And so I was really nervous because I'm like, man, I have to connect. Like we're kind of the same age at the time. And I'm like, I hope that I can just say something that's going to stick with people. Thankfully, I did pretty well. And there was a line of people waiting to talk to me just to say hi or introduce themselves. But at the end of this line, it was this six, five, tall white guy who just stuck out like a sore thumb. 
you know, I'm like, what does he want to talk to me about? So he comes up to me and he says, I've been an atheist my entire life. I don't like religion. I don't believe in God, whatever. He said, but listening to you just made me question everything that I've been believing my entire like adult life. And he said, you just kind of rejuvenated this idea that faith exists, that this idea that God exists. And he said, and this is the first time that I'm meeting a Muslim woman. And I'm like, what? I, I was speechless. So I'm looking up at this guy and I'm like, thank you. I didn't even know what to say. I was like, well, I'm glad, you know, I'm happy that something, your heart is still soft, you know? And that right there, let me know that it was bigger than me. It was bigger than my faith. It was bigger than Muslim girls or Muslim women. This was a way to almost bring love back into the world. You know, maybe one person at a time. So my goal from that point on, and I make this prayer almost every time before I speak, before I do a camp or whatever it is, that I can change the heart or the mind of just one person, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Christian, Jewish, white, black, whoever, so that I know that I'm a part of some type of positive change in the world, in the little world that I live in, I guess. It's that same desire to affect positive change that has propelled Carla Tarosian, a Blackfeet woman, to become a record-setting powerlifter and a law student studying Indigenous people's law. Carla first came to powerlifting because of her struggles with polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS. In the course of her research, she discovered a lot of positive benefits between weightlifting and hormone regulation. And so Carla first began lifting to see if it would help reduce her pain and improve her quality of life. And while it has done that, powerlifting quickly became more than a personal endeavor. Now Carla sees it as a way to give back to her community and to highlight the strength and resilience of indigenous femininity. When I walked into the gym the first day, I think I wanted to not only be somebody that people could come to when they needed help, but I wanted to basically research it for myself. Hey, I'm going to put myself through this. If I have PCOS and if I'm succeeding in this way, imagine how many other Indigenous women can do this too. So I knew that in all the years that I've played sports, being a captain or being a leader on and off the court, that was important for me. So I think that started the first day. And as it gradually went on, it's like, hey, I in getting kind of my feet on the ground type situation that, hey, I can do this. I can give back more than what I think I can give back. And I can help people more than what I think that I can help people with my own experience. I think that's really when it started was really at the beginning and gradually, I guess, picked up more as time went on because at the beginning, you know, I had insecurities. I had doubts about myself, like, hey, can I really do this? Will this really help me situation? And I know a lot of Indigenous women, they deal with infertility. My family alone, there's women that aren't able to give birth, and I'm one of them. You know, I've never gotten pregnant. I've adopted two wonderful children, and I have no problem in that, in that perspective, because, you know, I love my children. 
But as far as fertility goes, you know, PCOS causes infertility in women. And I know that indigenous women, they struggle with that as well, as well as, you know, a lot of women, a lot of non-Native women as well. I asked Carla if PCOS ever got in the way of her ability to compete. When I was younger, and I have to laugh because uh, it wasn't a laughing moment when I was younger, when I was dealing with such awful pains, you know, I'd have cramps like where it would hurt so bad that I would black out and I would sit in the shower and just it, it was so painful that I didn't know what was going on with me. And going into sports, it was kind of something that I just kind of kept personal. Like, hey, if I was struggling, I just told my coach, hey, I, you know, I got these massive headaches. And in general, it was really about the cramps and and dealing with that. Running up and down the court, you know, wasn't very fun when you're having huge cramps and it's taking out your lower back and taking out your legs. But I think just my diligence as far as my drive, my mental drive, and my physical drive, you know, they really just move forward. They never wait for pain or wait for insecurities or any of that, you know, like my body does whatever I ask it to do, and so does my mind. As a Blackfeet female powerlifter, Carla hopes to bring greater visibility to other Indigenous women, to the sport of powerlifting, and to the community she comes from, a community that supports her in all of her endeavors. I'm sponsored by my tribe. My tribe paid for my meets. They paid for my equipment. And I'm in debt to them because that's something that they've helped me. Like, they've seen that in me, and they were able to contribute to my dream and my goal. And I'm in debt to them for that. So I feel very privileged. And not a lot of people get that opportunity, even from just their tribal government. And so I'm very blessed that I was able to have my tribe back me and support me. And that made me feel good as an athlete. And carrying that forward, I want to continue to be able to give back to my community, my Native community, whether it be my home community or whether it be other reservations, and highlighting powerlifting as something that other people should try because it's a kind of a sport that's pushed behind all the popular sports and people don't really understand the benefits. A lot of people don't understand that even baseball and basketball players, they have to lift in order to get stronger. Carla told me that the stick she demonstrates as a power lifter comes naturally to her because of her early conditioning as a basketball player and because of her Native upbringing. She specifically credits her mother with teaching her how to be strong in her community and in her sense of self. The results of her commitment are evident in what Carla has been able to accomplish, although she tends not to want to focus on her achievements. I don't really tell people a whole lot in that regard, but I was impressed with myself and not saying something because I never really tried to be boastful. I'm proud of the Montana state records that I set because I'm 36 years old and I'm not a 20-year-old that just getting into the sport and I'm I'm not super young and I'm not old either. I feel like with the experience that I had in basketball and all of my cultural experience, I think it's just like a huge pot that's stirring up, hey, this is something that you can be good at. Carla started with a 45-pound bar, no additional weight. And now she's breaking state records, squatting up to 265 pounds, 
bench pressing 173 and deadlifting 380 pounds. But as inspiring as athletes' achievements are, as awe-inducing as their strength and power and achievements can be, it's important to look beyond athletes' external success and see them as people. I asked Jordan Kiesler, a graduate student at Georgia State University and former collegiate cross-country runner and softball player, who has based their graduate research on a comprehensive examination of the simultaneous visibility and invisibility of trans folks in athletics, about the objectification and commodification of certain bodies, and how society can become a better, safer place for all athletes. The first step is for people to realize that sports happens 365 days a year and not just every four year at the Olympics or every time there's a national championship or a World Cup. These athletes have to compete year round. And that means showing up for them and supporting them through their athletic journeys because they are more than just whether or not they win a gold medal. I think Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka have particularly exemplified the way that we expect too much of athletes and the ways that they are not allowed to have agency over their own bodies. And so I think that if we paid attention to these athletes' journeys from the start, we would see the work that they put in. We would have a better understanding of the sport they're competing in. So when they do make choices about their own bodies and whether or not they are competing, we can say they know themselves best. And that those athletes their voices are valued and they have a say in the way that their sport gets shaped. Like they are the next coaches, hopefully if they choose to do so to train a a generation of athletes, possibly from all the way down to like recreational leagues to the next Olympians. And so they have huge far reaching implications for what it means for young folks in sports. But if we only pay attention to them when they're trending on Twitter or when they're on NBC, what good does it do? Jordan and I spoke this summer in the midst of the Olympic Games. There was so much about those games that highlighted the disparities in treatment between individuals of different races, genders, and geographical locations, from the sanctions imposed on the Norwegian handball team for opting to wear less revealing uniforms, to the banning of swim caps that are specifically designed for black and brown women's hair, to the polarized response towards the mental health needs of certain athletes. The Olympics are an extreme and very public example of the scrutiny and pressure that those who play sports are under. And it's important to look at how at every stage of the game, it's essential to honor the personhood of those who are competing, rather than to reinforce the false belief that an athlete's only value lies in their capacity to compete and ultimately to win. Not only is that dehumanizing, it's unsustainable. There's like tons of studies about how NCAA college athletes after they leave are less likely to go to the gym than their peers because they have grown up in a team dynamic where they are like, they have no sense of belonging anymore or a sense of purpose. And so it doesn't matter if you spent 18 years going to the gym three times a week, all of a sudden you're like, who am I? What am I outside of my sport when I'm not reporting to someone or I'm not disciplining myself? under regulations that have been imposed for a long time. Many of us go through identity crisis. You end up with lots of like body dysmorphia, eating disorders, and just a sense of longing for something we no longer have and cannot replicate. There's no going back. At the end of the day, at some point as an athlete, 
you retire or an injury puts you out and no one prepares you for that day. There is nothing to be done to prepare you for that sense of loss. Jordan credits their ability to navigate that sense of loss, as well as the transphobia and violence inflicted on them by their own teammates, to the fact that they developed and maintained a sense of self that extended beyond their identity as an athlete. I had a very distinct social group that existed outside of my teammates from the get-go in college. And so I intentionally was like, there are going to be days that I hate softball prior to foreseeing any of these things that would happen. But I was like, there are going to be days that I hate this sport, that I hate my coach, that I hate my teammates. I'm just going to be mad. I, at the end of the day, have to love the university or college that I'm at. And so I really made it a point outside of my team to cultivate experiences and friendships that had nothing to do with sports because I wanted to have a reprieve from playing 40 games in a semester. It's essential to recognize that while athletics in America and elsewhere is a profit-driven enterprise, at the heart of it are the people whose talent, resilience, love of the game, and willingness to persevere through adversity make it possible for others to enter into their world as spectators and derive vicarious enjoyment from their ability to do incredible things with their bodies and minds. An athlete's relationships with their bodies, especially when an athlete holds an identity that due to cultural ignorance makes them susceptible to bodily policing and scrutiny, are often complicated. Sports really put you back in your body and let you find joy in the body. Whether that means you are walking around a track, whether that means you sit on the bench and you're playing, you know, right bench, (laughs) it is a built-in way to learn to move with the body and to find joy in the body and to know that your body is good. That being said, sports is not always open to that kind of built-in team, that built-in friendship. If it is, that's awesome and it's great. But oftentimes, especially if you're a young person, people are starting to form their ideas about the world and how things are supposed to be, right? And so you can be met with a lot of tension and feel like you might have to explain yourself a lot. And then on top of that, trans athletes are at the center of a culture war and As a result, they are hyper-visible yet invisible. So you can see, like you can Google trans athletes and you're going to see tons of articles for tons of bills that have been proposed, ACLU lawsuits. You're going to see things about whether or not they have natural advantages or not. But you very rarely will see an actual trans athlete speak about what sports means to them. Nothing is told from our side of the story oftentimes. And so... To live in that hypervisibility but invisibility feels like everybody's talking about you and you're in the room and you're like, hey, I'm over here. You can talk to me. And so to be out, at least as a, as a trans athlete, is to live in that intersection. And it can be really brutal. And for a lot of folks, they don't find joy in sports until much later in their lives where they repick something back up or they start something new and they build a community with other trans or gender nonconforming athletes. Hi listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, 
we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Environmentalist Alan Hershkowitz once said, 16% of Americans follow science, 70% follow sports. But following sports isn't the same as supporting those that play them or supporting those who support the multi-trillion dollar athletic industry. That said, if you do want to make sports more inclusive and you want to create a culture where it's possible to achieve unity through diversity and you care about athletics, it may help to hear the advice of athletes who have a lot to teach about how to up-level our game as individuals and as part of the social collective. Here is Jordan again with some advice for college athletes that was given to them and that they pass on to others. Honestly, the, the best advice I got was, and luckily I applied this, was from another coach that was recruiting me at the time who told me to literally go only go to a school because you love it, not because of the sport. And as I said, she was like, just because you think the coach is great, they have a winning streak, she's like, don't let that cloud your judgment because at the end of the day, if something happens, are you going to stay there or will you have to transfer? And if you love the school and you have things you do and can do at the school and love at the school, then you'll stay at the end of the day, even if sports is no longer there for you. And that, in turn, saved me a lot of money so that if I did decide at some point to transfer out, I wasn't losing all those credits, but also gave me a sense of community outside of my teammates. I always try to tell the athletes that I coach that softball won't always be there. It does end. And to make sure you make time for you outside of the sport, which is contradictory to anything I think young athletes get told, and that it's okay to do other things. You're a person who is multifaceted, who has strengths outside of just being a workhorse. Rick Beardsley had advice for other coaches. Really, the long and the short of it is treat every kid equal, treat every kid as if they were your own, and understand who they are. And for other parents. Try and teach your kids to be aware of their surroundings, and that's the key to it. You don't have to teach them to be anything but aware. That's it, because they're always going to think what they want to think. Angela wants, thinks her room looks great navy blue. I was like, Jesus, why do we have to make it navy blue? But she has that choice. I wasn't going to change her opinion. So we empowered her to pick her color. You know, when you empower your children, they'll find their way. You just got to make sure that they don't stray off the path in a major way. Picking a room color is one thing. Picking on someone of color is another. Danielle Evans had a message for those who have a desire or a dream. I think it's just to encourage everyone to just be your authentic self. Don't let anything stand in your way. Honestly, we hear it all the time, but genuinely, just be you because no one can ever be a copy of you. And, you know, as long as you're yourself, you can achieve anything. That is something that I'm absolutely keen to get across to everybody, especially in these difficult times when It all seems so dark and a little bit scary. We will get through it. You can achieve anything. Go for it. Achieve your dreams. (laughs) Natalie Fahey offered a suggestion for building a network. I always like to try and get a little bit of my advice out there. And I touched on this already, but like find 
a support group, whether it's friends at school, colleagues, your family, if you can just find three or four people that are together with you, like two peas in a pod or multiple peas in a pod, that makes things so much easier. Having that support system to lean on when things are tough really made it possible for me. Bilkis Abdul-Kabir shared what she learned about how to be happy and what we should all be looking for if we hope to cultivate happiness. So actually, I think it's a message for all. I listened to a lecture a while ago, and it was talking about what happiness means. And they said it was three things that make happiness. The first thing is something to do, something simple, something to do. The second part to happiness is something to look forward to. And the third part is something to love. And in this lecture, it said, if you have these three things, you're happy. And when you think about these three things, it doesn't say you have money, you have the best car, you have the best home. It was things that we could just look. I'm looking to my dad. He sleep on the couch. That's somebody I love. You know, the fact that I don't have to change my son's diaper is something to do. When you sit back and you think, man, I do have all those three things. Like we all can name three things that complete happiness. And I would love for the listeners to write those three things down. And when you're going through any type of struggle or any adversity or you're questioning or you're complaining, think about those three things because those truly are happiness. And Mickey Grace gave useful advice for anyone in need of allies. Find a network, grow in your network. If you can't find a network and grow in it, build your own network. I have a women's group that talks and we ended up, it's so funny to all the women who are in it now, like two of them are in the NFL now. And when we started this group, they weren't. There are people in the world who exist who will help you and pay no mind to the ones who you think should or the ones you think like, oh, I'm going to be friends with that person. You know, no one owes you anything. So find the people who are willing to give you everything despite that. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or you can visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Get in touch with us there, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Bodine Sanders, Trevor Baptiste, Mickey Grace, Zach James, Danielle Evans, Jeffrey Montague, Rick Beardsley, Natalie Fahey, Bilkis Abdul-Kadir, Carla Tarosian, and Jordan Kiesler. 
And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lee Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. This episode includes reporting by Anna Marie Jones. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.